Hello, Neil Buttery here. I hope you've been having a good week. If you've never listened before, welcome to the British Food History Podcast. And if you have listened before, well, welcome back. In today's episode, I talk to Ben Mervis, food writer, journal editor, and now author of the British Cookbook. It's a fantastic, comprehensive and beautiful volume and I was very pleased that Ben came on the podcast to talk about it. It's a project he's been working on for a long time and he's worked with all sorts of food writers, chefs, cooks and food historians. Indeed, it's how I've kind of got to know him when he reached out to me towards the end of, I think, 2019. Oh, 2019, it seems like a whole other world away, doesn't it? (laughs) But I was one of the people he reached out to to help him with the recipes. And we mention it a couple of times in the chat, but we don't explicitly kind of explain it, which is why I'm saying it now. It was great to work with, and I must say he has written a great book. And listeners, if you like your food history, and I know you do because you listen to this podcast, this book is going to be right up your street. Before we launch in, some contact details. If you've got any questions or discussion points about this episode, or in fact, any episode that's been so far, please contact me. Email neil at britishfoodhistory.com or find me on Twitter at Neil Buttery, Instagram at Dr. That's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. Start a thread, send me an email, leave me a DM. Let's get some discussions going. Also, please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please tell a friend or two about it. These are all excellent ways for it to appear higher up in searches and higher up in the charts. And a big thank you to everyone who has done that already. It is very much appreciated. Okay, all right, enough waffle from me. Here we go. I chatted to Ben at the end of August 2022 remotely about just how one goes about writing a book with 550 recipes and on what grounds a recipe should or should not be included. Delicacies such as sweet goose blood tart and gouga being cases in point. We also talk about tradition versus innovation, the importance of women and their writing in compiling the book, as well as the cultural significance of Dippy Egg and Soldiers, amongst several other things. I'll be back at the end of the episode to let you know about this week's Easter eggs for subscribers, as well as details on how to become a subscriber or a supporter of the blogs and podcast, plus any other news. But now, Season 4, Episode 5. Five episodes already. The British Cookbook with Ben Mervis. Congratulations, Ben, on the the British Cookbook. It's a beautiful, huge tome. Uh, I can't wait to see it in the shops. Could you tell listeners what it is? Because it's certainly more than your regular cookery book, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the British cookbook explores the culinary heritage of England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland through a a pretty comprehensive compendium of, I think it's clocks in at about 550 recipes, preparations and preservations that kind of sketch the shared experience of daily life in, in Britain for you know, the last two or three centuries, I'd say, you know, certainly within within living memory. And it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of founded on this expansive research that I've done into national, uh, regional and local culinary traditions, you know, tracing the roots of recipes and exploring the context of their creation and development, and then identifying the distinct and kind of connective elements 
of traditions that actually maybe cut across nations, sort of what brings people together, potentially what sets them apart. Yeah, I think that at the end of the day, it becomes this exceptional resource for the cook, for the home cook, but then also for for someone who's even more of a, you know, not, not the average person, someone who really wants to do a deep dive into understanding potentially the food of their region and um, a deeper dive into, you know, just how different British food or how similar British food from up and down the country can be. I think that it's really beautifully designed and exceptionally, uh, the dishes are exceptionally styled and photographed and you have stunning landscapes from everywhere from, you know, east coast of Scotland to North Wales and southeast of England. Absolutely amazing images and uh, the recipes not only are delicious, but they look equally so. Obviously, I, I think so because it's, it's, it's my work, but uh, I think it's, it's an amazing both introduction and then also something deeper for, for the home cook and and those interested in in british culinary heritage yeah the home cook is definitely you can see that that they are definitely in mind when you when you're looking through the book i mean i reckon i would say the first per, the first page of recipes i would say sums it up so if i'm right in remembering i don't have the book in front of me right now there's boiled egg and soldiers and omelette omelette arnold bennett yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Which I guess yep. really sums up what you're saying. You know, you're certainly not going to make omelette Arnold Bennett every day. <laughs> no. But everyone needs to have a stab at it at some point because it's an amazing dish. And you you sometimes see it in restaurants. It's hard to do in a restaurant. Mm. So the only way you're going to really do it is to make it at home. Yeah. And I mean, I could have, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of exa- other examples in the book. But, you know, you, you see what you're getting when you look at the first page. <laughs> yeah, and I think, and each recipe has... You know, I've introduced every single recipe in the book, and I think so. Then you get the, you get the, you know, the context, the historical context, or the origin of the, that recipe, and then how best to enjoy it. You get to really understand what's going on, and um, and where something came from, and maybe what might um, you know compare to it from another region of the country. Maybe the next recipe on the next page is quite different, but from the next county over, or quite similar mm-hmm. rather, but from the next county over. And I think that that's quite exciting because it does sort of work. I mean, it, it, it doesn't follow one single narrative. You can just pick it up and open to a random page and enjoy. But I think there is something interesting about charting that course across British cookery and, mm-hmm. and, and British cuisines and seeing the, the similarities and the differences and I think it makes British cooking and British cookery more compelling to see how it contrasts all the contrasts and the similarities and the complexities and the weirdness. I think that makes gives it so much depth and substance to understand all of its quirks and to celebrate them. Because I think that's maybe one thing that we're kind of bad at in the UK be appreciating British food for what it is and saying, you know what, I actually, I'm going to stand up and say, I love this and that it's great. And it's what I want to eat when I'm, you know, feeling down or it's what, what I'm looking forward to when you know, I'm looking forward to a summer pudding 
at this time of year mm. or or uh, you know the first mushrooms of the season or asparagus in spring and i think that's that's quite exciting and almost liberating to be like you know what i i don't have to kind of follow the the um kind of joking uh cliched sort of reputation of british food as being bland and and mm -hmm. you know boiled meats and so forth yes and i mean it's, it's tempting for people to kind of put these things in it's like oh look at this yeah. which i always find really borderline offensive because <laughs> um it's it's all it's all good food that people used to eat you know and yeah. uh, you wouldn't do that if you went to another country yeah you know, you'd know you were being rude <laughs> and um, you kind of go oh i need to be open-minded about this and uh, you know absorb this new culture and yet you know, we go, ooh, sweet pudding. I don't want that. <laughs> I kind of really put it down. Yeah, and I think that, I think that um, you know, if you had to pick your uh, your last meal or your favourite meal or custard something tart. like that, you know? Yeah, and, and, and I That's think... That's it. Yeah. I have my answer. <laughs> Just a whole it's custard, custard tart. tart. <laughs> <laughs> Starter, main, and pudding. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, I think that the average, the average person would probably be inclined to include a a british dish without necessarily registering you know you might have a steak pie or you might have a uh, sticky toffee pudding or fish and chips or whatever it is for your kind of absolute dream dinner mm -hmm. or a roast or you know what kind of gives you that sense of comfort yeah um, it kind of grounds you doesn't it you yeah know, it's yes and they, they come to you immediately because i guess they're part of what makes you you so yeah, you don't overanalyze it and don't think about it too much. The family will come around, I'm gonna make a roast. You don't think about it, yeah. you just do it. <laughs> and I think that, that that's actually one thing that works for me as an outsider is that, as an outsider, as, a, as an Ameri you know, American born, I, I have lived in the UK now for quite a long time and this is my home and you know went to university here and uh, <laughs> very much feel like America is a foreign country now, but uh, I'm able to look at every recipe in that book and go, at one point, I would not have known any of these recipes. So at one point, they were all new to me. And so I have that mm -hmm. kind of freshness and that excitement. And I think that you get that in the introductions to the recipes, for instance. And um, I think that that's, that the reader will pick that up, just how excited I am about Everything that I'm writing about, I, I will reveal that um, I wrote the book backwards. So I wrote it with the puddings first because I oh, okay. uh, definitely have a sweet tooth. And I was mm. thinking, oh, I'm going to sit down to write the book today. Oh, but you know what? I want to start with the puddings because that, is the, the bit, mm. <laughs> that is the bit that excites me the most. So um, I had no, uh, no difficulty writing the puddings. Go, go back, going back to that first page... No one, as far as I, I mean, people can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think I've ever seen a recipe for eggs and soldiers. And it's every day and it's a very important part of our culture because almost every kid in Britain at some point has had egg and soldiers. It's extremely important to our, our culture and, and our sort of food memories. And yet nobody would think to put that in a book. Yeah. But once it's there, you realise actually it's really important that that needs to be there. It's one of those recipes that, I'd never seen before. I'd never seen or heard of before I came to the UK. You know, it is, as you say, ubiquitous here and um, and beloved. And um, mm. I mean, I, I don't know if there's anything that is distinctly British about 
a soft boiled egg or, you know, but I think that is such a British tradition. Yeah, I reckon most British people would have thought egg and soldiers was ubiquitous around the Western world. I think a lot of people would be surprised. I was surprised that nobody knew what a pork pie was when I went to America. Mm. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, <laughs> a know. cold a cold pork pie uh, or a cold meat pie uh, was something that was I really had to wrap my head around. One funny thing that I've encountered in my research is that also that British people think that some recipes are actually American. So banoffee pie, many British people that I've met uh, say, isn't that American originally? And I'm going, no, that is absolutely yeah, not American. Yeah, I thought it was American. Yeah, <laughs> there mm-hmm. is no chance that that's an, an American dish. Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I think we had a discussion at one point about prawn cocktail. I think I thought it was American and you... Um, or was it the other way around? I think I might have been the other way around, the yeah. was. That, that is actually one that I, that I did grow up knowing. So, um, but I, of course, there's, there's, I think, you know, it's another important thing to say that there are no, I don't think that you can easily, always easily say what country a certain recipe or what cuisine a certain recipe belongs to and something can be shared, something can, you know, be influenced or adapted from another country's you know, culinary heritage or, you know, the expats or uh, immigrants from another country and what they bring to the culture or certain flavors that are brought over or ingredients. There's a huge history of how migration and trade and empire influenced British, uh, British cooking, not only now, but you know, a thousand years into the past. I think that that definitely comes up in the book time and time again, is the influence from abroad. Yeah, I think that's an important part because we think about, oh, we have to stick to, to tradition, but tradition is a is slow reeled innovation, I think. And if you just stop it at a still frame, then it, it doesn't really capture how something became traditional and the way it might be adapted going on which is maybe something that is easier for me to say as someone who kind of has no stake in the game <laughs> or, or, um, or maybe not as much. It certainly comes across in the introduction. You really uh, highlight, I mean, how, how anybody sits down and goes, okay, I need to write four pages on the entire history of Britain. Oh, that was a, food that was a really tough one. That was really oh tough. Lord. <laughs> As I was reading, I was thinking I'd be having an aneurysm at this point. <laughs> I think I did, at least a few times. Um, and just, But I love that you start with Neolithic man. You really yeah. do go for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, with a starting point. But, well, and, and that you do nail it mm-hmm. in a couple of pages, mm-hmm. you know, really helps, I think, the reader... I mean, I reckon I know about these things, but I don't think I'd ever actually managed to get the whole mm-hmm. of British history, yeah. the entirety in my head all at once. And I think you've done a pretty good job there. So you should pat yourself on the back with that intro. I think it, well done. You get an A. You get an A. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think that I think that it, it is a really good introduction to what will follow, and I think sets up the rest of the book really well. And I think that's the most important thing. Whether you know whether it. Um, covers everything that's important to British to British food and food history. Of course, it doesn't. But I think that it touches on a lot of major points that, for the uninitiated, will be really useful to to have that, and then they can say, "Okay, now I kind of get what's about to come, and uh, mm-hmm. I get the author's voice. The author is this 
expat who's grown to love British food as he's grown to love Britain. And uh, kind of this is the culmination of his passions and, and personal interest. So yeah, that's that's absolutely what it is for me. And and it was, you know, my baby for uh, four years now that I've been working on it. Mm. And I think that, you know, it, it's it's fun and exciting to have as as if it if it's an introduction to British cooking for someone, it's also it's also equally for um, can be for that uh, restaurant chef who's curious to dive deep into these niche recipes or or home cook who's who's looking to explore something um super different about you know british cooking and then you know for for those of us like like you and i who are curious to pick up some some uh, some new reading I've, I've i've got that huge bibliography at the back of the book which uh, will set you up quite nicely for a few years. Excellent. <laughs> I think it's important to say that, you know, the, the, the knowledge that the, the foundation of knowledge that the book is based on is the, the comes from not only my work, but uh, the work of countless fantastic British cookery writers from the last 200 years or so. So I think that it's important to kind of establish that and the many, many amazing books and kind of nerdy goodness, bits of goodness that you can can uh, sink your teeth into. So that there's a lot there. I mean, it's almost 500 pages and it's a huge tome of a book. So there's a lot to, to get into. Were there recipes in the book where, you know, it was difficult to find ingredients or uh, the methods required were perhaps lengthy? That you... Possibly know that people aren't going to cook. Am I right in assuming that? I mean, you can, you can disagree with me there. So there were definitely instances where it was very difficult to find the ingredients or nigh on impossible. I would point to uh, sourcing goose blood, sourcing mm-hmm. cod liver these days, super difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, sourcing a sheep's head in the UK. Can be done. Particularly. I've, I've managed the... <laughs> Can be that difficult. Can be done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, they they all can be done, and I I'm lucky, or I suppose unfortunate, if if this is not your cup of tea, to have had also Guga as well from um, from the Isle of Lewis or from just north of the Isle of Lewis. Mm, we might have to which, explain what that is for people. Yeah, Guga is a, <laughs> a salted young gannet, which is uh, one of the kind of last ancient traditional Scottish uh, delicacies that has been, you know, the, the right to eat it, the right to hunt Guga has been preserved by the Scottish government, which licenses a single group of 10 men uh, to kill 2,000 uh, young gannet every year. And it's the same group who whose families have been doing it for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a really amazing tradition. And I've been lucky enough to be able to try it. But um, mm. I, I highly doubt that the average cook, whether even if they're living in Scotland, are going to be able to find Guga <laughs> or perhaps want even want to make, to uh, go through the work to cook the Guga as well. So there, there were plenty of recipes that had tricky to find ingredients. Perhaps mm-hmm. I should have included Guga in the end. The, the, the recipes that I always have a problem with are the everyday working class recipes that are made by women and girls who were possibly illiterate or were illiterate at the time and the skills of, skills of essentially 
disappeared. Yet mothers have been passing down, you know, the, the, the skills and the knowledge down to their daughters. You're not going to get information about those recipes by going to the British Library, for example. No, no. And I think one of the interesting things that I noted early, very early in the research process was that all of these early powerhouses of, you know, writing on British cookery, I'd say 95, 98% of them are, are women. And certainly in, in terms of the domestic cook, cookery, which mm -hmm. is what I've been interested in this with this book, it's not. I mean, there are uh, more kind of opulent dishes, but it is they are all dishes that you could make from home. There are no kind of restaurant servings in there. And I think that mm -hmm. I think that that's one thing that really makes this book distinctive too. I, I early doors was chatting with various chefs uh, uh, who had previously researched historical historical British recipes and got sent kind of uh, syllabuses of uh, reading and what what historical cookbooks to look at. And I compared it with the list that I had already started on. And I think that the biggest difference was that one was looking at royal courts and royal court cooking mm. um, and were, written, were books written by men and the others mm -hmm. were, were domestic cookery or, or a kind of more average household cookbook and were written by women. And I mean, there's nothing that means that it needs to be men or women, but this is just something that came up again and again. I think thinking about my influences and biggest inspirations on this book, Dorothy Hartley, Jane Grigson, mm -hmm. Florence White, some more obscure ones like Nell Heaton or Florence B. Jack. More recent writers, Laura Mason, who sadly passed away in the process of doing, well, she wasn't researching on my book, but she did pass away since one of my early conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and people might know the, the Taste of Britain, the fantastic yes. book that yeah. she, she put together there, which yeah, is and the, indispensable. And the, yeah, it's a fantastic <laughs> book. Actually, the, the original version of that, I think it's called Traditional Foods of Britain, a regional inventory or something. Before mm. it was, it was republished and then broken into... They've chopped it up into several books. Yes, they, yes, they and have made you yeah. purchase all of them, but you can actually get the original one, which, which I should say was funded by. Uh, it was an EU grant, interestingly enough, to uh, to inventory all of Britain's distinctive regional foods and heritage uh, breeds and so forth. Super fasc fascinating, which she worked on with Catherine Brown, who's you know one of the absolute standout figures in Scottish cooking, and then in in Wales, Bobby Freeman and Gilly Davis were super important too. So, I mean, I'm just kind of listing, <laughs> listing lots of, lots of options for, uh, for writers to go and check out, but I wanted to emulate their, the kind of how they approached British food and their sensibilities, I think is hugely inspiring. I, I remember something that has lasted my memory is a, a quote by Jane Grigson about the quote, inheritance of British cooking. And that was really inspiring to me to think about, to use that as a way of thinking about uh, British food and that sort of inheritance. But were there any recipes that were difficult to, to really pin down? I mean, we toed and froed, of course. Uh, and I remember getting very confused over the very subtle difference between dozens of different types of sausage and, um, and, and puddings, uh, I like our steam puddings. 
it's a it's quite a minefield isn't it i remember in particular long kind of debates over more obscure dishes so wilfra cakes and wilfra tarts Mm -hmm. what was the real difference there and then thinking about um i think one one that came up quite that you can actually still find from time to time now both in supermarkets and bakeries and restaurant menus as well is um maid of honor tarts Mm. and that is something that you know looks very very different in uh in a supermarket compared to for instance at st john in london where i've where i've also got to try it too um so that was something that that kind of surprised me um and yeah there, there are plenty of recipes that didn't make the cut into the book because they were a little too similar to a recipe that was already in there um Mm -hmm. there are some recipes i won't say which which are quite similar to other recipes already in the book but they are both you know for instance take two recipes that are perhaps quite similar but um they come from two different regions and i think it would be uh, blasphemous to say that they're the same recipe so i'll let readers decide what those might be but um, there are quite a lot of similarities and in fact there are many dishes and uh puddings and pies and so forth that are called uh different things but are the same things across mm. across borders that's always quite exciting too i i haven't mentioned the the publishing house that published this book, but uh, Viden Press, they also have a fantastic book called uh, The Nordic Cookbook. And that mm-hmm. is an exploration, of course, of the different cuisines of the Nordic countries, which perhaps vary a bit more than they do within the UK, and at least, and, and also have that total difference uh, with languages. Uh, so mm-hmm. you'll get maybe four or five uh, potentially different names for one, you know, preparation of certain meat dish. In the UK, there are also examples of that. And I was very inspired by how Magnus Nilsson had kind of laid that out. And so I did try to do that as well when relevant and have that to be able to see that a recipe is you know, shared across borders, but then also known as different things. I thought that was quite exciting. Or to know maybe a recipe, a a certain dish is cooked up and down the country and known by different names, but not necessarily in a particular region. Sometimes these distinctions became very hard to pin down as well. Where does a recipe come from if maybe it originates in one county, but really it's another county on the other side of the country where it's where it's found most often today. And would those people in the county that it originated in even recognize it? So there were some questions mm-hmm. of how to um, how to kind of signpost it. But I think it will make sense to the reader. It's the place that we most commonly associate it with. Can I ask about working with 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 Fiden on such a lavish book? What's the what's the process where you you know, a book like this where uh, there's a fair amount, I'm assuming, time and money bent making it look nice, making sure the recipes work. What was that experience like on doing such a big such a big project with a with a team? Well first I'd say don't don't get into writing cookbooks to make money. <laughs> I, I think that yes, there there was a there was a bit of money uh 
relatively speaking, in this project, especially as it lasted, I think, from start to finish, four years. But um, mm. it's it's not really, it's unfortunately was not comparable to um, having a desk job for that whole time. Yeah, so I guess um, it's more of a budget. Yeah, a little, maybe a little yeah. bit of that. You can take a pinch out of that for yourself, maybe. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I think, um, but obviously they produce absolutely wonderful books. And I think knowing that with confidence, this is going to be a gorgeous book, knowing that at the start and that you'll have the backing of a publisher who knows exactly mm-hmm. what they're doing and wants the absolute best for the book in terms of its, you know, readability and wants a, a beautiful cookbook as well. And I think that that is something that's different about this book too. It's absolutely stunning and sam harris who was the photographer and and myself sam's mm-hmm. a friend of mine and we uh got to travel up and down the uk taking photos of absolutely stunning oh the, those photographs are absolutely um, and, beautiful you know you it's it's a really immersive yeah. book not just the words you've chosen to use yeah. but yeah the, the images as well yeah, so I mean, in the book you have those five hundred fifty recipes, but in addition to that, you have I I don't know how many dozens and dozens of land gorgeous landscapes, really really diverse selection of landscapes from at different times of year, from summer to super foggy mornings mm-hmm. in Wales. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and to have that kind of in addition to the chapter introductions and and the recipe introductions is what makes this you know particularly special i think yeah i mean you some people perhaps um, could argue it was like oh you can buy loads of books on 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 british food but uh, you know another one doesn't need to be written but the reality of it is we're actually quite overdue one and usually mm. i'm assuming budget or you know or the size of the book itself it, you know it constrains the project so really it's not that comprehensive and you get to include things like um chicken tikka masala and uh jerk chicken things that you know are relative relative newcomers to british cuisine and don't appear in in other books so it's really nice to see actually that uh there's a well i'm not sure if it's a snapshot of everything we're eating now because there's, there's a lot of forgotten forgotten gems in there but i guess it's a uh a picture of what we've been eating for maybe the last 200 years maybe yeah and I'd, I'd like to kind of point back to that quote that i said earlier from jane grigson the inheritance of british cooking and i think that's a good way of thinking about the book and what has kind of entered into that inheritance now mm. and i think that yeah, as you say dishes like chicken tikka masala and jerk chicken certainly count uh, amongst mm. that i think there's a fine line there between not wanting to say certain recipe you know there is a difference between this sort of quote-unquote inheritance of British cooking and then dishes that are very, very commonly cooked throughout the UK, which might be traditional to another country and are cooked in the same manner. And you don't want to be saying that that dish is actually a British dish when it might be cooked up and down the country, but not any different than it would uh, back home. So that was a fine line to balance um there but i think we did a good job with that and everything in the book has been something that's been adapted or kind of created within the uk and kind of given a new life and energy here yeah well i think it's certainly done that and um i mean i'm very pleased to see the the number of uh i guess what i would call hidden gems things that i am familiar with now but when i started down my as people like to say journey 
of, <laughs> of British food. You know, there was such, there were certain things that were just revelationary to me. Uh, steak and oyster pudding being one. Mm. That was a revelation. Um, Cockaleeky soup was another. <laughs> having just been used to the Baxter, Baxter's tin of yeah. chicken and leek soup, which isn't cockaleeky soup, and they should be yeah. sued for it or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, these are absolute revelations. You know, where um, I was cooking foods that I wouldn't have cooked normally. It's just that I really got into it. So I'm glad those things are are represented there too. I mean, have you got any that are, whilst researching the book, you maybe weren't too familiar with and really stood out as something interesting? One of my favourites that I was just absolutely obsessed with and and kind of desperate to find more examples of this sort of uh, cooking or baking was the goose blood tart, the sweet goose blood tart from Wales. Um, mm-hmm. Just one, one particular region in, in Wales, so not across the whole country but um just kind of i loved the way that it really fit into the festive calendar i mean if you're making a goose and you have the blood you know if you're making a roast goose for christmas dinner and you have the blood then you might as well be using the blood in this in this way and and it really creates this kind of you know rich velvety i mean it does sort of become a little bit like mince pie i loved that as a as a kind of forgotten forgotten gem but in other places i, I really loved the usage of heritage ingredients as well like bare barley so barley bannocks up in shetland or mm-hmm. unusual usage of otherwise common ingredients like um, using whole groats like in groaty pudding in the midlands or fermented oats like in uh, sowens in scotland and yes. wales i think that was really exciting so i do look to some recipes and hope that people get really excited about them and maybe we'll see a craze of uh, well i don't think goose blood tarts are going to start cropping up all over. well i remember helping out with that recipe <laughs> yeah <laughs> and one one uh, i got an email from one recipe tester saying how how many milliliters of blood is there in a goose <laughs> i don't know <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I, was like, I was on Google trying to precise. find out how much, how much blood there is in a goose. Yeah. Oh, I also love that there's a woodcock and, and snipe and things like that, mm, you know, the traditional, yeah. traditional ways of eating those, which sounds like it, for some people it would be some kind of ordeal. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> um, um, absolutely essential to have those in the book. And I remember um, I agree. with our recipe tester, she she was making them and she was looking at the recipes going because i worked with uh, chefs on those chefs that i know cook game birds exceptionally well and mm. cook them in a way that's perhaps a, a, a touch uh different from uh what is sometimes the traditional just blast it with heat and and the recipe tester going oh there's no way that that will cook and then it and then it works quite beautifully so uh it, very, it does yeah i've cooked that. them several times and when my little restaurant was open I, I had it on the menu you've got to really try and talk people into it it was one of those moments i think when i started eating when i said i'm just going to eat all those recipes in, in english food by jane grigson i eventually got hold of a whole woodcock and me and a couple of friends we just stood around this slice of toast with all the <laughs> Cut spread out on it and we were sweating and it was one of the most delicious things i've ever eaten mm, absolutely you know so it just goes to show that you know certainly when it comes to game i mean i think it's important that people bear this in mind that for the for the majority of recipes that appear in british cookbooks none of the people were starving mm. they ate those things because they liked them yeah and it's 
it's your issue, not theirs, that you think it's strange. <laughs> yeah. uh, at least that's what I try and tell myself when yeah. I'm having something. Yeah. I think in, in today's world, we're quite often so far removed from, you know, the the killing of an animal and the slaughter, you know, the, the butchering of an animal. And, and so then it becomes almost uncomfortable when you get closer, you're able to kind of really tell where it came from and have flavors and cuts that are unfamiliar. But the more comfortable and the more common that becomes, I think when you, you know, know where it's coming from, I think it's so much more responsible and you're able to demand a much higher level of quality and to know what's going on. And I think that, yeah. No, I, I agree. I eat much less meat than I used to. And, and and fish. I, I, my fishmonger only catches sustainably caught fish, so it means they're a bit more expensive, so I eat it less. But that's kind of the point. We should be eating less of this, <laughs> especially the really high-protein, high high-carb foods. We need to be eating less of it. So yeah. spend a bit more, eat less of it. The food's nicer. Yeah. You, you're just as full or even perhaps more full. Yeah. You know, make your own soup and make your own bread. And all you need is a bowl of soup and a slice of bread. But if you're going to the mm-hmm. supermarket, you know, you can put away half a loaf of white plastic bread pretty <laughs> easily, in my personal experience anyway. Yeah, yeah. So Very it true. is about um, there being a real difference. Maybe it is to the to the life of the animal that's that you're eating, but there's also a real difference to the quality and the quantity of food that you're eating if, if you can make more of it yourself, I think. Well, thanks so much for coming on the, the British Food History podcast to talk about the book. Um, do we know when it's going to be published exactly-ish? What what what, what are we hearing? I've, it can be tricky with publishers, can't it, to get a precise day? <laughs> it sure can. Um, as far as I understand, just now, um, and hopefully it hasn't changed by the time this this uh, podcast comes out. It's September 22nd in the UK and then October Mm -hmm. 3rd everywhere else. And it's available anywhere you can buy books. You can also buy it via the publisher's website, Fodden Press. You can get it there. And I think at the moment there was, you know, when I I went to check on it today to be 100% sure about these release dates, um, I I saw (laughs) that there was some kind of discount code. So or discount on it. So hopefully those listening to this can can grab a, a little discount on it too. Yeah, pre-order discount. Yeah, People exactly. are quick enough. Excellent. What else is happening? Oof. Loads. In the world of being nervous. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you're going to have a small nervous breakdown. Yeah. You've earned it. Yeah. And then, have you got anything else lined up? So the nervous breakdown's happening now, and then uh, uh-huh. no. Um, I I publish a, a food-focused travel magazine called Fair. It's very good. And Fair focuses on one city in every one. Each issue is a different city, and those two hundred pages are dedicated to bringing that city to life and using food as a means of understanding the place and the people and the history. So if you like the book or if you've come across the magazine already, there's a lot of similarities between the book and the magazine in terms Mm. of appreciating locality and local foods and telling stories through the food itself. So that's that's a, a really important part of both the magazine and the book uh we've just released our lisbon edition later this Ooh. year we will uh we publish twice a year so there's 
you know, each issue is, it's, it's a little bit more like a tiny book in some ways. Um, it's 200 pages and uh, it's the top. And that also looks beautiful. Thank I mean, I've, I've read past issues. It's a, Thank you. it's a wonderful thing that you must be very proud of it. Yeah. You know, it's, it seems to have been very well um, received. Yeah. And it's, and yeah, it look, looks amazing. And you get a good variety of writers in there. We get, we get always um, locals to to form the bulk of the articles on each city. So it's, it's quite exciting to have locals writing about their own city everywhere from Istanbul to Kampala in Uganda and Tbilisi in Georgia and Antwerp in Belgium and just everywhere locals talking about what's important to them and mm. not just me coming in and sharing what I think about the place. And you can get that online at Fair Mag, F-A-R-E, mag.com and we ship everywhere in the world everywhere um so that's what i'm up to and then who knows what will come of this book maybe something else i'm sure you can get lots of excellent emails and messages and all sorts when people finally get their hands in the book so uh well well done thank you thank you (laughs) that's all i can say (laughs) well done thanks and yeah thanks very much for for coming on the podcast oh thank you it's been an absolute pleasure Oh, do you know, this book is going to go down very well indeed. I've included all of the information that Ben just gave us, dates of publication, links to the Fiden website, as well as links to his magazine, Fair, and all the social media as well in the show notes as per usual. I've got a few news items, if you're interested. I recently appeared on a couple of podcasts. One is called The Lubber's Hole. It's a Patrick O'Brien podcast. I had a great time on there talking about Regency food and dining. And then I popped up on another called Bread and Thread, a podcast about, well, I suppose the history of the home and domestic life. And I talked about one of my favourite topics, puddings. Check them out. Links to those things are also in the show notes. Do you know what else there's a link for? That's right. My book, A Dark History of Sugar, which... I'm pretty sure I hardly ever mention, but information's there if you want to grab yourself a copy. And don't forget to tune into One Dish on Radio 4 on Wednesday mornings, 9.30am. One Dish is presented by the chef Andy Oliver, and I was responsible for doing the research and a little bit of the script writing too. Show your support, have a listen, download. Let's have a season two, because it was such a great show to work on. Anyway, oh yeah, Easter eggs. There are two owl treats waiting for any subscribers out there. One is about, from my point of view anyway, the excellent representation of offal in a book, as well as the importance of whole animal and whole grain cookery. And the other is an outtake where we talk more on how the book could be used, or I suppose uh, the different ways the book can be used. All right, it's nearly time to go. I'm just going to say again, if you want to support the podcast and blogs... You already are by listening, but to support more, you could become a subscriber. Subscribers get access to my Easter eggs page with all those extras from past episodes, the deleted scenes, uncut interviews, etc., as well as the extra blog posts for subscribers. To start a subscription, go to the support the blog and podcast tab on the website, BritishFoodHistory.com. A subscription is just £3 a month and everything I receive will go back into making more content. Alternatively, you could treat me to a one-off virtual coffee or pint. And don't forget to contact me with your questions or comments. Off I go. Have a great week. 
I'll be back soon with another episode of the British Food History Podcast. Cheerio! Cheerio!